the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. You see, it is only when an individual sees his sin does he realize his desperate need for the cross of Christ as an atonement for his sin. But he has to see himself first as a sinner before he'll see his need for a savior. In fact, we could say that the preaching of the law is really the the first message of the cross because without the moral standards of the law revealing God's holiness and revealing our utter depravity, our sins really don't seem to be a serious problem. The Ten Commandments are not well liked in our society. Many groups and individuals have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees trying to ban the display of the commandments in public venues such as parks, town squares, and halls of justice. I can't help but think that the real reason behind these efforts is a desire to avoid the kind of conviction and condemnation that Pastor Steve just mentioned. Welcome to another broadcast of Verse by Verse with Steve Kreloff. Steve is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. His ministry has been marked by a commitment to teaching the Word of God in a clear and practical manner, even when it means proclaiming an unpopular message like the one that we will be studying in this new series on the Ten Commandments. Despite the opposition to them, the Ten Commandments are still very important to the world today. Let's listen as Pastor Steve introduces this new study. About a year ago, Michelle and I were invited to someone's home for dinner, And our host informed us that she was also inviting a Jewish friend to join us that night with the hope that I would be able to witness to her friend from a Jewish perspective. And so I did. That night I spent a great deal of of time trying to be culturally relevant to this Jewish woman as I presented the gospel with the Jewish flavor. I, I emphasized the Jewishness of Jesus. I emphasized the Old Testament messianic prophecies were fulfilled only in in Jesus of Nazareth. I told her about the Jewish flavor of the New Testament and that all of the Lord's first followers were Jewish. And you know what? That evening was really a very pleasant experience. There really was no arguing, no serious objections raised, no awkward moments of, of tenseness. In fact, everything went well. It went too well. This unsaved Jewish woman found no problem with anything that I shared. She found no problem with me. She found no problem with what I told her about Jesus. In fact, she pretty much agreed with everything I had to say. And from all appearances, it looked like it was a very successful evening of witnessing, but it was not. It really was not. It was not a successful evening of witnessing. When Michelle and I got in our car to go home that evening, I said to her, I said, you know what, I really blew it tonight. I absolutely blew it. I I was so concerned about relating to this woman as a Jewish person that I failed to emphasize that she was a sinner. 
That's the heart of, of the message that you're a sinner and need salvation. And I told Michelle, I said, you know what I should have done? I should have told her about the law of Moses and specifically the Ten Commandments in order to help her to see that, that she's a lost sinner in, in need of salvation. Instead, I'm emphasizing all this stuff about being Jewish. That's, that's so secondary. She's a sinner first. That's what I should have done. And I told Michelle, I said, you know what I, I need to do? I really should do a series at Lakeside on the Ten Commandments so that we can, we can all clearly identify God's holy character and the true nature of our own sinfulness. And so out of my own failure to effectively witness to a Jewish woman that night was born a new study, which we begin this morning on the Ten Commandments. It is a study that I think we, we all critically need because without an accurate understanding of the Ten Commandments, not only will we fail to identify God's, God's holy character and the true nature of our sinful condition, but we're, we would also fail in presenting an accurate gospel picture an accurate gospel message to others. You see, it is only through the preaching of the law as the expression of God's holy character that people come to see themselves as, as fallen, wretched creatures. The law defines for us the specifics of our sin. In fact, this is how Jesus evangelized. We're going to look at this later, but remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Jesus said? He presented the law to him. He said that, have you done this and have you done that? And, you know, and that was our Lord's perspective. The, the master evangelist presented the law to this man so this man would see his own sin. Same thing with the Samaritan woman. Remember, she said, I've, I've got to go tell everyone. He said, go tell your husband. And she said, I, I really have no husband. He said, you're right. You're right. The man you're living with now is not your husband. What was our Lord doing? He was putting his, his finger on her sin of adultery, just like he was putting his finger on the sin of the rich young ruler, which was the breaking of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And so our Lord used the law in evangelism. As someone so graphically put it, only by the light of the law can the vermin of sin be exposed in the heart. And so if the law reveals and exposes our sin, it is important for us to realize that any evangelistic effort must at some point proclaim God's law, certainly not as a means of salvation, never, ever. That would be heresy. That would be salvation by works. Everything in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, cries out against that. But as the way to show people the true nature of God's holy character and also the true nature of our sinful character. That's the purpose of the law. It was Martin Luther, the German reformer, who once said this. He said, the law must be laid upon those who are to be justified, that they may be shut up in the prison thereof until the righteousness of faith come. That when they are cast down and humbled by the law, they should fly to Christ. The Lord humbles them, not to their destruction, but to their salvation. For God woundeth that he may heal again. He killeth that he may quicken again. You see, it is only when an individual sees his sin does he realize his desperate need for the cross of Christ as an atonement for his sin. But he has to see himself first as a sinner before he'll see his need for a savior. In fact, we could say that the preaching of the law is really the, the first message of the cross. Of the cross, Because without the moral standards of the law revealing God's holiness and revealing our utter depravity, our sins really don't seem to be a serious problem. It's sort of the attitude of, well, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, so big deal. But unless we see the serious problem of being a condemned sinner 
someone who has broken God's law, and there is a penalty for that, then we're really not going to be too concerned about having a savior, a remedy, a deliverer from our sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul told the Galatians, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law points to Christ. In other words, the law teaches us the truth about ourselves, teaches us the truth about God's holiness, teaches us the truth that we need a Savior, that you cannot keep the law. It is impossible. It is impossible to keep the law. You may be able to keep the externals of the law, but not the the intent, not the moral intents of the law, which is an inward attitude of obedience, not simply external. And once again, the words of Martin Luther in explaining the value of the law are worth hearing. This is what he said. As long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, thief, he would swear that he's righteous. How is God going to humble such a person except by law? The law is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the thunder of God's wrath to bring down the proud and shameless hypocrites. When the law was instituted on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by lightning, by storms, by the sound of trumpets to tear to pieces that monster called self-righteousness. As long as a person thinks he's right, he's going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He's going to hate God, despise his grace and mercy, and ignore the promises in Christ. The gospel, the free forgiveness of sins through Christ, will never appeal to the self-righteous. This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And then Luther said, and that's what the law is, a big axe. And that is precisely why the Apostle Paul made some some of the most profound statements concerning the law. For example, in Romans 3.20, he said, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And on a personal note, in his own life, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. There's nothing wrong with the law. On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, Paul wrote, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. He said, I was once alive apart from the law, meaning I thought everything was okay with me. I did the ceremonies. I kept the external observances. I went through all of the ritual cleansings. Paul said that, that I was once alive apart from the law. I thought I was okay. Now, he wasn't alive spiritually, but he thought he was. But when the commandment came, meaning it came to my heart, the Spirit of God applied it to my life, I understood what the law really meant. He said, sin became alive. I thought I was alive, but sin, it aroused sin in me. And he said, and I died. Meaning I I, I was slain. I was killed. The law condemned me. I realized I was a dead sinner, dead spiritually. And this commandment, which was to result in life, meaning he thought it would, he thought it would, proved to result in death for me. It is through the law that knowledge of sin comes to us. Yet, as important as the role, uh, as the law is in the role of evangelism and showing us our need for Christ and as defining personal holiness and obeying the Ten Commandments, I want you to know that too many Christians minimize the importance of the Ten Commandments. And let me tell you why. One reason, I think there are a host of reasons, but one reason is because they've been told by some Bible teachers that the Ten Commandments is irrelevant to us as church-age Christians. It was only relevant, some teach, to Israel. They were under the law, not to us. Some of you have been taught by that. 
by teachers like that because they are the teachers in the dispensational camp, some. And they've said that we are no longer under law, but under grace. And their interpretation of that is that the Ten Commandments was strictly for the nation of Israel, not for church-age believers today. And so according to this view, the Ten Commandments may lead you to Christ. But once you come to him, you are not biblically mandated to obey them. They are irrelevant in your life. One of the most influential teachers of this view that believers today are, are under no biblical or moral mandate to obey the law was Lewis Berry Chafer, one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, not to be confused with Francis Schaefer. Whenever I mention these names, someone said, now Francis Schaefer said, no, Lewis Berry Schaefer, who was highly influenced by C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Reference Bible. Now I've got your attention. I know that. In Chafer's mind, every dispensation had to be either under the rule of grace or the rule of law, but never both. He wrote this, both the age before the cross and the age following the return of Christ represent the exercise of pure law, while the period between the two ages represents the exercise of pure grace. What he means by that is that Israel had pure law. No grace. The kingdom following this day and age, the church age, will be the messianic or millennial kingdom. Pure law again. No grace. In between is this age. Church age, age of grace, however you want to call it. But he would say this is pure grace. No law. You cannot have them mingling together. That's what he, what he is saying here. He writes, and I continue, It is imperative, therefore, that there shall be no careless commingling of these great age-characterizing elements, else the preservation of the most important distinctions in the various relationships between God and man are lost, and the recognition of the true force of the death of Christ and his coming again is obscured. In other words, he's saying, before Christ came, believers were strictly under law. That's it. But now we're strictly under grace. When he returns and establishes his kingdom, he will again rule again strictly by law. You see, in, in Chafer's theological system, there was no room for grace and law to exist together. Now, I want, I want you to know, I, I believe that Lewis Berry Chafer was personally a godly man. In fact, I, I know of that, that he was a godly man. And yet, he opened the door with this theology, he opened the door for many who would follow his teachings to legitimize a style of Christianity characterized by careless and carnal behavior. And let me tell you this, this is at the heart of the lordship salvation issue. It's at the heart of it. Many who hold to this system of theology known as dispensationalism are in opposition to the doctrine of Christ's lordship. And I might add, not all or dispensationalists, but some, as being part of true saving faith. Because in following this brand of dispensational teachings advocated by Chafer and, and others, they see grace in opposition to all biblical law, all biblical law. And so when they come to the New Testament, their perspective on personal holiness and obedience is that it is merely an option. It is not a demand. And they would say that grace makes only suggestions and law makes only demands. And since we are not under law, but under grace, 
only suggestions. And folks, this is what leads some in this movement to make such statements as you can trust Christ as Savior and later on it is optional whether you will take him as Lord. It's at the heart of this because they do not mix law and grace. Now, I want you to know that theologically I am a dispensationalist, but I am a dispensationalist in the sense that I believe that the Bible makes a clear distinction between the promises made to Israel and the promises made to the church, and they are not the same. But I do not for one moment believe that the Bible teaches that being under grace frees me from keeping the Ten Commandments, nor do I think that grace eliminates the need for believers today to keep the moral laws of God. So here's the real question that that we face. How do we balance How do we theologically balance statements in the Bible that says that we are under grace and not law with keeping the moral standards of the law expressed by the Ten Commandments? In other words, and this is a critical issue. I want you to know that that Bible believers would say that this is one of the most critical and difficult issues to, to really grasp, if not the most difficult issue, and it's this. What is the relationship today between grace and and law. Now, you thought you were going to get into the first of the Ten Commandments today, but we have to go through this in order to see that the Ten Commandments are relevant for us, that we are mandated to obey them, that they're not something we just read and say, oh, that's, that's for Israel, not for us, and I don't need to obey them. So the issue is this. If, if we don't arrive at a biblical balance and understand the relationship of grace to law, then I, t- I tell you that we'll fall into one of two extremes will fall into either the extreme of antinomianism, which means no law. You don't have to do law. License to sin. It's the attitude that says, once saved, always saved, do whatever you want. You'll never lose your salvation. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that, but some do teach that. And if, um, if we're not careful, we'll say no law. We're not under any law, so therefore we can do whatever we want. That is antinomianism, no law. Just do as you please. That is a license to sin. Jude speaks about that concerning false teachers. A license to sin. Or we could go the other extreme and say all law. All law. All of the laws are in effect. And you know what? If you do that, you've got the same problem that the Apostle Paul faced in the early church. This was the crisis of the early church. Jewish people came along in the early days of Christianity and said, look, you've got these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. They need to obey the law. The men need to be circumcised. They need to keep every Jewish uh, festival. They need to do all of the ritual cleansings. They need to keep all of the holidays. They need to keep all of the, the kosher foods. And the apostles fought against that. And in every one of Paul's letters, he fights that. That's called legalism. That's called another gospel. That's what the whole letter to the Galatians was about. Paul was the strongest defender, along with all of the apostles, that salvation is by grace alone through faith and that not keeping the law. But ultimately, that's what you end up with. That's what you end up with if you take all law. So there, there is an uh, important, critical issue in understanding this whole subject. Now, this morning, what I want to do is give you two vital truths about the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, that will keep us from these erroneous extremes. 
And they are very, very dangerous. In fact, if you think, well, that's just an ancient issue. Nobody really uh, believes all law today. Let me tell you, they do. As someone who's Jewish, I have been exposed to a lot of Jewish believers, uh, uh, many in the Messianic Jewish uh, movement, who would say that, yes, we are under law. You've got to obey all the Jewish holidays. You've got to obey all of the, uh, the Jewish dietary laws. Don't you dare have ham. Don't you dare have sweet and sour pork. Don't, you can't. You think that's not a relevant issue? It is a very relevant issue. Very relevant. Or those who want to go back to all of the civil laws that Israel had. And there are some like that. So let's begin by looking at the first vital truth about the law of Moses that protects us from error. And it is this. It is the fact that the law is permanent. The permanence of the law. That's how God intended it. And what I want you to do is look at Matthew chapter 5, the passage that I read to you just before we prayed, in light of how many Christians believe that grace releases them from the obedience to the law of God, it is fascinating to note that Jesus said just the opposite. He said that the law had an abiding and permanent nature, and he said it in Matthew chapter 5. I'll read it to you again, verse 17. Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill, meaning I didn't come to, to destroy them. I didn't come to replace them. I didn't come to set them aside. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now the question is, why would Jesus feel compelled to mention that he had not come to abolish or to, to nullify or destroy the law. There's a reason for this. Now think about this. The Sermon on the Mount of which these verses are in were directed, was directed at Christ's followers. These words were for the followers of Christ. He said that right at the beginning, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew tells us, he went up on the mountain and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. This is a sermon for disciples. For believers. Now, just at the outset, let me, let me tell you, it all ties in what, what I told you about the teaching of Chafer and Schofield and others like that. Because what they would do, actually, since Jesus went on to speak about the law, they would say, and they do say, that the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant for church-age believers, too. They would say, since he spoke about law, this is for the Messianic millennial kingdom. It's for the Jews after the church age, not so. Not so. And we know that it can't be so because Jesus spoke about false prophets and false teachers. And he spoke about things that will not exist during the millennial kingdom. This is for us. This is for believers. What Jesus was saying, in light of the fact that the kingdom hasn't come, how should you live? This is not for the kingdom age. The kingdom age, you're not going to have some of the things that Jesus spoke about in this, in this sermon. So, what does he mean by this? Why would Jesus feel compelled to mention about destroying the law? Well, for one thing, it was, the very, it was the very followers of Christ who so often heard from the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus of Nazareth broke the law, they said. Now, he didn't, but they said he did. 
The religious leaders accuse Christ of, of doing such things as failing to keep their interpretation of the Sabbath law because he dared to heal somebody. He dared to do good on the Sabbath. And because of their very narrow view and interpretation of the laws, they said he's a Sabbath breaker, he's a lawbreaker. So Jesus had to defend that. His disciples heard that all the time. In addition, Jesus didn't teach law-keeping as a way of, of meriting salvation. That's what the Jewish religious, religious leaders taught. In fact, if you look at verse 20 of Matthew 5, Jesus nailed it right here when he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and, and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They think that by being good and keeping the Ten Commandments, they're going to get to heaven. Jesus said, you better have something far better than that. And what he meant actually is you need to have my righteousness put on your accounts because you don't have any righteousness of your own. You're not keeping the law. But the point is, is that Jesus didn't teach what they taught. He taught that he was the way to heaven, not law keeping. It was a new message to them. So Jesus needed to clarify. And we are certainly thankful that we do not have to measure up to the standards of the law in order to be saved. But that does not mean that the law is invalid or unnecessary. Pastor Steve will continue his explanation of this in our next broadcast. We're glad that you tuned in today. If you're a new listener to Verse by Verse and you would like to learn more about this ministry, we invite you to give us a call at 727-239-0306. You can also visit our website at versebyverseradio.org. This is Peter Silseth, and I'm inviting you to join us next time on Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's ver- celebrating 20 years of three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.